today is an exciting day, at, at least it is for me, because we're kicking off our new sermon series out of the book of Nehemiah. So you might be less excited. That's okay. That's all right. We'll, uh, we'll try to get you there in, in the process. Now, the, the title for this series is the same title as the message this morning, and that is Building for the Future. And today's message, is, it's going to be different. Today is just an introduction to the book. So it's going to be quite different than, than normal, than the way I would normally preach on a Sunday. We're going to do an overview of Nehemiah. We're going to talk about some history. Um, in general, I'll be doing more teaching, maybe even, than, than preaching this morning. But we'll get back to that. We'll get to all of that uh, next week. But there are some things we need to accomplish this morning that are going to set the stage for all that is to come in the book of Nehemiah. So hopefully by the end of the day, today, you'll have a better handle on this book. You'll, you'll understand its place in the canon of Scripture and, and where we're going in this series, Building for the Future. Because what we want to accomplish through this study is to learn the key elements in building a church through the building of your own life and your family and your home. As I've already told you in previous weeks leading up to this study, a strong church today, this, this is no shock here, it sets up the future. So we need to take this study to heart, not just for ourselves, but for our kids, for the next generation, for what God wants to do in this church in the future. You know, I, I asked you a question a few, a few weeks ago, and that was this. I asked if, if the Lord tarries, and, you know, we, I don't think he's going to, but if he does, if the Lord tarries, will this church still be standing in another 50 years in today's world, right? We're 163 years in. Will we still be standing in 50 years? And, and when I say that, when I say standing, I don't only mean still meeting on Sundays. I mean standing on the truth of God's word. And like I told you then, we can all hope that it will. We can all assume that it will, but that isn't enough. We all, every member of this church, needs to take ownership and responsibility to ensure that it in fact does remain, that it remains strong and that it remains fruitful and remains faithful to God's word. And so like it or not, we all have a part in what becomes of this church. That doesn't only apply today. Of course, it does apply today. But it's true of the future as well. We are all part of the direction that this church goes. So that means as a church, we can't get comfortable. I, mean, I, I think, you know, God's letting us know that anyway, just through the, the, the chaos of this world. But that means you can't get comfortable either. And, and let me just be very blunt with you right here um, from the outset. So we'll, we'll just, we'll get it out. You'll take it, and then we'll move forward. You cannot ignore biblical principles in your home and make God and, and church a low priority in your home and then expect something different out of your kids. I mean, maybe they'll figure it out and do better than you, but let me just tell you, the odds aren't great. If you don't trust the Lord in your home, the odds are your kids won't either. If you don't adhere to biblical principles in your home, the odds are your kids won't either. 
If you don't make being a part of ministry of this church a priority, the odds are your kids won't either. And that's not just me being an alarmist or trying to guilt you into something. I'm not. I'm, I'm not into that at all. I don't want you guilted into anything. That is just a fact. And I have a load of Bible verses and even a ton of worldly research to back those statements up. In fact, let me show you your responsibility when it comes to your children. You can see it among other places. You can see it many places in Scripture. But let me just show you one in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 6 and 7, which says, And these words, which I have commanded thee this day, shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt. Right? This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. That, that covers pretty much all the time. You see, Bible principles are to be emphasized in your life and in your home on a consistent basis. And dads, I'm really looking at you on this one as a leader of your home. I want you to just listen to this stat. This is according to data collected by Promise Keepers and Baptist Press. If a father does not go to church, and listen, I get it. I'm talking to everybody who's at church. So, but maybe there's some people listening out there. If a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. And I don't exactly know how they define regular worshiper, but it doesn't matter. The point holds true. So with that in mind, let me give you the key verse that we're going to use in this study in Nehemiah. This is the, the key verse that we're going to focus on. And it's Nehemiah 4.14. And now if I was teaching this book in a different context, if I was teaching it in a survey class, which we have in our LFBI, by the way, or if I was teaching it in a different context, I'd pick a different verse. But, but the focus of this study, for the focus of this study, this is our key verse. It's Nehemiah 4.14, and it's Nehemiah speaking. And he says, And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. There were enemies out there. We'll talk about that. Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And what I want you to see, the mindset I want you to get out of this study is that we are in a fight. And it's a fight for each other, for this church. It's a fight for this church, and it's a fight for your home, because Satan is out to get both, I promise you. And listen, we talk about spiritual warfare all the time, but I'm not sure even when we talk about it that we really get it. And I'm afraid that, that we become too enamored by the world, which is our enemy. We have those three enemies, our flesh, this world and its system, all ran by the devil. But I'm afraid that we're too enamored by this world and what it has to offer us and our kids to really engage in the fight. And, and, and the, the, the bright lights just become too distracting. And that has to change if we're going to build something for the future. And this book is going to show us how to fight this fight. So before we get into the details and, and the overview of this book, let's go ahead and open up 
in a word of prayer, and then, and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. It gives us everything we need. It is fully authoritative, and it is fully sufficient, and so thank you so much for it. And thank you for books like Nehemiah, as, as we're going to talk about Old Testament focused on the nation of Israel, and yet, Lord, there's so much truth in there for us. So many ways you make it practical for us today. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that you use today to lay the foundation for, for where you want to take us in this series. And, Lord, I, I just pray that you will use it in our life. Uh, and you will, you, will, you will build on everything um, that, that we're going to talk about today so that we can build uh, for you. So we can build our homes, we can build our lives in a way that is glorifying to you. And so, Lord, I pray that everything that is said today is true to your word, first and foremost. I pray that it's honoring to you, glorifying to you. And, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit does the work that only he can do and that you, you use it in our lives and you convict us and convince us of what needs to be changed. Lord, then I pray that we have the wherewithal to follow through on that. Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, to set the stage for all that this book has to show us, I have to give you a little bit of history. And this is going to give us the setting. That's our first point, the setting of this book. Now, for me, this stuff is super interesting. I love it. But I get it that that might not, not, not necessarily be the case for everyone in here. So um, I'm going to try not to belabor it. I'm going to try to move through it fairly quickly, but it is going to take a minute, you know, or 10. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a little bit of time because, because you do need to understand the backdrop of Israel's history in order to understand the times that we are living in today prophetically. So when you look at your Bible, particularly the Old Testament, it breaks down kind of into four major sections. I have them there on your outline sheet. You don't even have to fill in any blanks. So you have the Pentateuch, or the books of the law. Those are those first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then you have what are called the history books. So the history of the nation of Israel after they've entered the land, and that's Joshua uh, through Esther. And then comes the wisdom or the poetry books, and that is Job, those five books from Job to the Song of Solomon, which in, in many ways are the, the heart of the Bible, kind of centered around Psalm 119 uh, in the middle there. And then lastly, you have the prophetic books. So those are the books of the prophets. So that's Isaiah through the end of the Old Testament through Malachi. And that's sort of the traditional breakdown of the Old Testament, and it's a, the, the proper way to look at it. But here's what you have to understand when you see those books in that order and broken down in that way, that those books are not in chronological order. So they're not by date of, of, of when they were written. They're not in chronological order. They're, they're in dispensational order. So, so let me give you another way to look at it to bring in how book order relates to where we are in God's prophetic timeline. So what you see in, in Genesis really starting in Genesis chapter 12, but we'll just say Genesis through the book of 2 Chronicles, that's really all about the calling out, the formation, the establishment, and ultimately the downfall of the nation of Israel, right? So that starts with Abraham, and that goes through the book of 2 Chronicles. So from that Genesis 12 to the end of 2 Chronicles, that covers roughly 1,400 years. And as you're reading through the Old Testament, when you finish the book of 2 Chronicles and enter into the next book, which is Ezra, you see a major shift. There's a dispensational shift that is occurring. The book of 2 Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew Bible, and it ends 
with Israel in Gentile captivity. And the last thing that the Jew reads, and he's reading his Hebrew Bible, is instruction to go back to the land and rebuild. That's 2 Chronicles 36, verse 23. And that verse says, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all the people? The Lord is God be with him, and let him go up. That's the last thing he reads in his Hebrew Bible, to go back to the land, to rebuild. So those historical books, so Joshua through Esther, and those prophetic books, Isaiah through Malachi, they really kind of, you can, you can frame it this way. They're kind of centered around this major event of Jewish captivity by the Babylonians. Okay, so I think that's on your outline sheet. So they're kind of centered around, it's centered around that. So there's books that, talk, uh, that, that explain what happens leading up to it including some of the prophets. There's some that, that occur while they're in captivity. So that's the book of Daniel, for example. Um, and then there's books that, that describe after the captivity. And that time of captivity is outlined there in 2 Chronicles 36 as well. It's earlier in the chapter, like verses 17 through 20 specifically. We won't take the time to look at it. But, but Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, a Gentile empire, they initially captured Jerusalem. In 606 B.C. And this initial seize by Nebuchadnezzar begins what the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles. All right, I, I promise I'm going to make, just stay with me, I'm going to make all this make sense. But you can see that phrase and that, that time of the Gentiles described in Luke 21, 24. It says, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So this is the beginning of God's shift away from Israel for a time being. Genesis 12 all the way through 2 Chronicles focus on the nation of Israel. That's, that's, where, that's where God's at. But once the time of the Gentiles starts, God begins his shift away. Now, it doesn't happen for a number of years, but he begins his shift away. The nation is no longer. It's not in the land. It's under captivity. And starting in 606 B.C., the world begins to be run by a series of Gentile kingdoms. So you had the Babylonians, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, and then they're taken over by the, the Persians, the Medo-Persians. And then there's Greece, and then there's Rome, right? The Romans were in charge at Jesus' first coming. So here is what you need to understand. The times of the Gentiles is a prophetic clock that started running when Israel was ejected from the land, and it begins to wind down when they return, which is happening as we speak. We'll get into that in a second. So it ends with the rapture. And it all started with this Jewish captivity in 606 B.C. And the, the captivity itself lasted 70 years until Cyrus, the king of Persia, allowed the Jews to go back. Persia was in control again at that time after Babylon. So that's what we read in 2 Chronicles 36.23. You see that return documented that in, in the book of Ezra and, and in Nehemiah. So now... The nation of Israel never goes back to the powerful nation they were before. They're always occupied by some controlling Gentile nation. But they're at least back in the land. 
But, but here's what you need to know. The, the Jews go into captivity, so to speak, and return to the land two times. Okay, now you've got to stay with me on this one, all right? We're, 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 we're going to land this plane. We're heading somewhere. But you need, to look, you need to look with me in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 9 through 11 says this. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign for the people. To, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar, from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And this is where the Bible just gets super interesting. And what God and how God can juggle everything in history and his story is just super interesting. Because this absolutely could have been fulfilled at Jesus' first coming. Right? I mean, the nation of Israel was under bondage in Egypt before the Exodus, before Moses. Um, but it didn't. They didn't accept him. And so I, I want you to see how this is playing out prophetically. Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what Isaiah includes is this aspect of a return to the land. So... I didn't read verse 12, and I don't even think we have it up there. But listen to Isaiah chapter 11, what he says in the next verse. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcast of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he ties these two captivities and two returns to a return to the land. So, so... Prophetically, what happened is this is, the, this is the first captivity, this 606 B.C. under Babylon. And they're there for, for 70 years and, until 536 B.C. where a first wave returns under the leadership of Zerubbabel. You can see that in the book of Ezra. And then there's a second wave that comes back under the leadership of Ezra in 458 B.C. And then there's a third wave under the leadership of Nehemiah. And that's in, that's in the book of Nehemiah. So let's call that, in this prophetic timeline, the first captivity. But then there's a second time they go into captivity, so to speak, prophetically and, and historically. And this was in 70 AD. And this is when a Roman general named Titus, he comes in and he destroys the temple in Jerusalem. And all that were there that had gathered back in the land are made to flee. And they're scattered throughout the world. But guess what? In 1948... They came back. And they were officially recognized as a nation again, and the Jewish people returned to the land. And they're doing so even today. And we see this prophesied in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 34, through the parable of the fig tree. And the fig tree in the Bible is a direct reference to the nation of Israel. Those verses say, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Well, that branch put forth its leaves in May of 1948. And listen, there are people that disagree with my description of that. And, you know, again, are going to say what I said about Isaiah chapter 11 is wrong. And that's, that, that, that goes to Egypt and then it goes uh, to, to Babylon. But what I see in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 9 through 12, 
ties a captivity to the root of Jesse and a second captivity to the Lord coming back to recover his remnant. So God ties both of those to a coming to the Lord. That's just how awesome he is. He just, he's just always right, and he just always makes it work. So what you have is this first captivity and this first return preparing the way for the Lord's first coming. And the second captivity and the second return, 1948, preparing the way for the Lord's second coming. And so when we get to the book of Nehemiah, prophetically, that's what it depicts. This is why you need now, okay, if you've been zoned out for a little bit, come back with me because now I'm going I'm to make it make sense. This is what, prophetically, this is what it depicts. That 1948 returns, the reestablishing of the city. It's the rebuilding of the walls, the reestablishing of the people. That's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. And this is just how awesome God is. You can even see that in the canon of Scripture, how those Old Testament books are ordered. It's why it's, this is why it's not in chronological order. Because watch this. Ezra and Nehemiah picture that return to the land. And then what's the next book? It's Esther. And what's that story? It starts with a Gentile queen being replaced by a Jewish queen. What pictures the rapture of the church and, and God's attention fully going back to the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 3 of Esther, a guy named Haman shows up. And what's Haman want to do? He wants to kill the Jews. But, in the, but what he's doing is he's blending in and he's working his plan behind the scenes. That's a picture of those first three and a half years of the tribulation before things get too bad. But the next book is Job. Things get bad. This book pictures the great tribulation. That second half, those final three and a half year time frame, those final 42 months. And not coincidentally, we find that the book of Job has 42 chapters. And what's next? Psalms. Written mostly by King David. It's a time of worship with rest being a focus of that book. The word selah, which means rest, is found 72 times in the book of Psalms, three, only three other times through the rest of the Bible. And all that pictures the millennial reign of Christ as he leads from David's throne. I'm telling you, this book is something amazing. It's something that could not have been put together the way it is by men. So are you still with me? All right. Even if you're not, I'm, I'm done with history. But I took that time to show you that the book of Nehemiah is perfect for us today because it pictures the time right before the rapture where God is rebuilding, reestablishing the nation of Israel. It's today, and it's what we need today because we get to learn from that rebuilding process. It's about Israel, but it works for the church too. It works for your family. See, Jerusalem was the center of the Old Testament, but the church is the center of the New Testament. The temple was the focus of worship in the Old Testament, but we are the temple in the New Testament. So this book is perfect for us today. And that brings us to the synopsis. And, and here we're going to discuss the details of the book of Nehemiah specifically. And like we just discussed, Nehemiah chronicles the time shortly after the captivity had ended, after those 70 years. So we're, you know, that ended about 536. Nehemiah starts in about 445 B.C. And like I said, Zerubbabel and Ezra had led groups of Jews back to Jerusalem 
And by the time of Nehemiah, the temple had been rebuilt. Now, it wasn't anything like Solomon's temple, that Solomon built. But it's rebuilt. Temple worship, to some extent, had been reinstated. But things are still a mess. And the temple was back functional, but the city itself was broken down. It was completely unprotected. And that's how the book of Nehemiah starts. In chapter 1, with Nehemiah learning of this fact. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we read the words of Nehemiah, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, a son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, this is Nehemiah speaking, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, and he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And so Jerusalem is in bad shape. Nehemiah was burdened by this news. Verse 4, And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, and fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. And as a result of this burden... Nehemiah sets out a plan to rebuild Jerusalem and and rebuild the walls around it. That was its only protection. And we'll get into this when we get into our study, but I'll just tell you today so you kind of know where we're going. Those walls represent for us doctrine and the safety found in God's Word. And when it comes to building your life and your home and this church, that has, we have to get that right. Amen. Proverbs 25, 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So listen, if, if you cannot control your own spirit, your own will, well, then you're like a city. It is set on a hill without walls. In other words, without defense. And when your walls are down, you become easy prey. Become easy prey to the devil and to this world system and to your own flesh. That's how you become distracted by all this world has to offer. You let your walls down. And you might even still come to church, but you're not building for the future. You're not preparing for the judgment seat of Christ. I'm telling you, don't be hoodwinked. And it's easy for that to happen if you're not careful. 1 Corinthians 14.32 says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And that's a very interesting verse. But in order for that not to happen, you have to place your spirit, your emotions, your will under the control of the word of God. Is living your life through the lens of faith. And the standard of our faith is the Bible. That's where there is safety. Those are the walls. And I'm telling you, and, and, and you know this, but when we go out into this world, our faith will be challenged. The fact is, you will be tempted to take the easy way out and not live according to faith, but, by, but, but to live by what you see in this physical world. And the world puts out a tempting offer. That's why it's so important to stay connected with us here, to be a part of a life group. Like Craig said, if you're not a part, man, I, I beg you, get a part of one. It, it's that important. Put yourself in a position of accountability and get grounded in God's word. And then you go out in the world to be a witness, but you understand it's not your home. 
Too many of us think it is. So above all else, you must remain firmly based on the Bible. If you, do, if you do not operate and run your life and your home under the absolute standard of the Bible, you'll run into problems. I, I don't know what else to tell you. But back to Nehemiah, he has this burden, and he sets out to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem and, and the gates that are attached to the walls. And, and that's exactly what he does. In chapter 2, he gets King Artaxerxes to buy into this burden. He gets him to buy into his own burden, and the king allows Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And in chapter 3, they, they begin that process, and they start with the gates, the gates that are in the walls. And there are ten gates that they rebuild. And listen, the, the pictures that we are going to see in those gates are amazing. Through those gates... You will learn everything you need for your life in your home and in this church to really glorify God. And you're going to learn a few things that you need to avoid as well. Chapter 3 is going to, be, going to be a fun one. But in this process of rebuilding, not everything goes perfectly smooth. Because like 1 Corinthians 16.9 says, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. And Nehemiah had some adversaries. And we're going to also, in our spiritual walk, this church has adversaries. You may not even know it, but your home has adversaries. They might even look like friends, but they are enemies to the work. And when Nehemiah deals with those adversaries, he takes it to the Lord, and we're going to see that process of defeating those guys in chapter 4. But get this today. There's a proper mindset required to stand in the midst of opposition. You see that in, in Nehemiah chapter 4, look at verses 4 through 6. It's Nehemiah praying to the Lord. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. The adversaries were out there. And turn their reproach upon their own head. And give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity. And, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. And so Nehemiah takes this to the Lord. And, and man, that's a, we're gonna, this is a good prayer. It's a harsh one, but it's a good one. But then look how they come out of that prayer. Verse 6. So built we the wall. Those guys were out there. Nehemiah is the leader, he's praying, he's going to God on their behalf, and they just kept working. So built we the wall, and the wall was joined together under the half thereof, and look at this last phrase, for the people had a mind to work. What a great verse, had a mind to work, and, and we'll learn what that is, and how to do it. So there were adversaries, but it didn't stop the work, they got it done. They rebuilt the walls and the gates. The, the city had been in shambles for 142 years, and they rebuilt it in 52 days. And it's going to be fun going through that process. There's, there are so many great things to learn from it. We'll see that all the way through chapter 6. So chapters 1 through 6, the, the kind of the focus of the book is you see the rebuilding of the walls. But when you get to chapter 7, you see a shift. And you start getting a bunch of names. And where they're located on the walls and stuff like that. So in chapter 7 through 13, we see the rebuilding of the people. 
So they start with the walls and they make sure the doctrine, the safety that they have in the word of God is straight. And now they've got something to give the people. And we're going to see the rebuilding of the people, the reestablishing of worship for this new wave. And the heart of that section is found in chapter 8. And that chapter is focused on the centrality of the word of God. And listen, we know this, we've even already talked about it. But when it comes to building for the future in a spiritual sense, the word of God must be central in your life for continual spiritual growth. It must be central in this church if we're going to stay on the right course. It needs to be the lamp unto your feet and the light unto your path in order for you to navigate this dark and dying world. You should realize by now that you cannot live a truly fulfilled life by being ignorant to God's truth. So listen, if you're lagging behind in that, let me just say, it's time for you to get a handle on the Bible. It's time for you to grow up spiritually and learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. The future starts now. And that brings us to our last point this morning, and that is submission. Because if this study of the book of Nehemiah is going to do anything for you, if it's going to be a benefit at all, it will only be after you submit your life to his way and to his word. We're going to learn some really important aspects of, of the walking of the Christian, in the Christian life. How to build a church, how to build your home, how to fight the opposition, how to keep the word of God central. All of it. But if you're not willing to give yourself over to what the word of God has to say and actually apply it to your life today, then it will be of no use to you. So don't hear God's word and try to stock up and say to yourself, well, I'll get to that later. I'm kind of busy right now, and when my kids get a little bit older, I'm going to get to that. No, it doesn't work that way. You need to be all in with us now, because here is what you need to understand about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the right man in the right place at the right time, and here's what I know. When it comes to your home, and your membership in this church, you are in the right place. God set you up in the home that you are in. And while we certainly don't have everything down in this church, we do preach and hold to God's word as a standard. So you are providentially in the right place. You're also in the right place at the right time. And what a time it is in history. Right between Nehemiah and Esther. And we're about to be taken out of here. And God saw fit to place us all at, in this church at this time in history. Listen, we're obviously at the right time because we had no part in that. We had no control over when we were born, where we were born, those sorts of things. But I'm telling you, even though things are crazy in our world right now, it's kind of a cool time to be alive. Maybe we're a part of that last generation that Matthew 24, 34 talks about. So really, all that's left, and the question I want you to consider this morning, is are you the right man? Are you the right woman? God has done his part, and he has set you in the right place at the right time. Are you doing your part to serve him where he's placed you? And if not, will you start today? 
Because you can be the Nehemiah that God needs you to be. You can be a builder. There was nothing special per se about Nehemiah. I mean, he wasn't even a priest. That was Ezra. He most certainly would have been born during the captivity. So he wouldn't even have ever seen Jerusalem before, before he went back to rebuild. He, never would have, he didn't have a, an emotional tie to a city he had never been to other than he knew history and he, and, and he knew God's plan. And he heard about the need and he was burdened by it because he wanted to serve the Lord. And when you look out at your life and your sphere of influence, are you burdened by the need? Because I promise you it's there. Your kids and your grandkids need you to be all God has for you to be. Your spouse needs you to be all God has for you to be. And maybe you say, well, I don't, I don't have a spouse. I don't have kids or grandkids. It doesn't matter. Your friends need you to be all God has for you to be. Your schoolmates need for you to be all God has for you to be. The people you run into the, through the course of your day need it as well. And listen, because of all of the people in our lives, God needs you. And he needs you to be dialed into him. And I know in one sense that sounds ridiculous, that God needs you. And in one sense it is ridiculous, but let me just tell you, that's how God set it up. Because what I said is biblical, and I want to show you, and then we'll be done. See, there's a story in the Gospels what, with what is referred to as, as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? Slightly a, a week, week before his crucifixion. And, and while we don't necessarily recognize it to be anything special, because it has Catholic roots, you might know it as Palm Sunday, right? Where Jesus rides in on the colt's back and they're throwing the palm leaves down. And it was triumphant in that for the first time, Jesus enters into the capital city of Jerusalem openly to reveal himself as king. But it was also what set in motion the events of that final week of his life. Because we all know he wasn't accepted as their king. But as part of that story, right before he entered Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples into a village to get a colt. This is going to be the, the colt, the, the donkey colt that, he, that he's going to ride in on when he enters Jerusalem. But when he sent his disciples to get the colt, he gave them some specific instructions. We see this in Mark chapter 11. Verses 1 through 3, and that says, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. So they're coming into the city, and he stops, and he sends two of them in, and he saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. So he's untrained, he's young. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him. And straightway he will send him thither. And we don't have time to read all of this story, but what you need to see is, is that cult is just a picture of you and me. It's actually a very beautiful picture. It's, it's its own sermon one day. We'll, we'll get to it. But, but here's why he's a picture. Because his job was only to lift up Jesus as the king. And that's the same job that you and I have. The only thing that cult did was bring Jesus to the people. And that's all an effective Christian does as well. 
And when you do that, you just can't let it go to your head. I mean, think about it. For a donkey colt to receive the praise offered to Jesus is silly. But when a Christian does it, it's blasphemy. Because it's not about us. The effectiveness of your life or the effectiveness of this church's ministry is only measured by how well we bring Jesus to the people. That's what we're here to do. Now, if something happens and people get saved and grow up to, to spiritual maturity, well, praise the Lord. But, but that's the point. The praise goes to him because he did the work. So when, when we are doing our donkey work, we have to be careful to keep the focus where it's supposed to be on him. That's 1 Corinthians one thirty one anyway, that let him glory in the Lord. Anyone that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Because we have nothing in ourselves that's worthy of any worship or praise. But we can point people to the one who does. And we can glory in that. And we can be excited beyond description about Jesus being lifted high and shown off to the world on our backs. Listen, we should pray every day that the Lord just allows us to be a donkey in his parade. And that brings us to the point that I'm trying to make here and why we are studying Nehemiah. It's because there's not enough of us doing it. There's not enough of us doing the work to build the future. There's not enough of us being the donkey for Jesus and lifting him high as we bring him to the people around us. And, and there's no greater shame than that. Because like I told you, that's what the Lord needs us to do. Because that's what he said. Look again at verse 3. If any man say unto you, why do, why do ye this? Why are you grabbing this colt? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him. They send him thither. And like I said a minute ago, this is ridiculous, but this is how God set it up. And, and truly, this blows me away. Jesus said, if anyone questions you about this, say the Lord hath need. And I want you to think about that phrase for a second. I want you to juxtapose in your mind the first two words of that phrase versus the last two. You have the Lord, Jehovah, creator God, hath need. Hath need. Are you kidding me? The Lord hath need. I think those may be some of the most amazing words in the Bible. You see, Jesus, without laying aside his sovereignty, had taken a nature full of needs. Yet being in need, he was still the Lord. And listen, those words apply to us today as well. I mean, he's God. He doesn't need us, of course not. But he has chosen to place himself in a position of need because he wants to use us. How amazing is that? And he's given us a commission and a job to do to lift him high, to bring Jesus to the people around us in our home, in this church. He's given us a job to build for the future, however long it may last. And of course, he could use anything to do that. But he's chosen us. And he wants to use you. And he has placed you in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Are you going to be the right man? The Lord hath need of you. The Lord hath need of me. And how crazy is it that the Lord has placed himself in a position of need of us 
And we say no. Because we're too busy. We got other things going on. I mean, Lord, maybe I'll get to that tomorrow. And we say no when we refuse to do the work of the Lord that he needs us to do. How bold are we? And some of us think, what can I do? I don't know anything. I've not been saved long. I wouldn't know what to say. Listen, he used a young, untrained, unbroken donkey. And all he asked was that donkey lift him up and bring him to the people. And it's all the Lord's asking of you. That's what he needs you to do. I know. Listen, I feel it. Sometimes I look at my home and the job and I'm like, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make this right. I don't know how to do it right. I want to. I don't know how to do it. It's like all you need to do is bring me into your home. Just bring me into your home. I'll do the work. Just put me on your back and lift me up. That's all he's asking you to do. And that's really all Nehemiah was doing, just the work that God put before him. Listen, he was a cupbearer. He wasn't a builder. (laughs) But God will give you what you need exactly when you need it. If you're just willing to be faithful and do the work that he's called you to do. Lift him up. And listen, I think that whenever... We have anything of which the Lord's cause has need. How cheerfully should we hand it over to him? I mean, just like the owners of that colt did. So whether you hear it or not, God is telling you this morning that he needs your life. He needs you to bring Jesus to the people that you come in contact with every day. He needs you to be the man of God or the woman of God for your family, for your friends, for this church. Will you do it? Will you say yes to the Lord's need? Listen, we have the ability to provide something our Creator needs. And I don't know how we have the audacity to say no. So let's go build something for the Lord. And let's do it together. Nehemiah is going to teach us how. But you've got to be present to hear it and to learn it. And then you've got to put it into practice. But we can all do it together. And if we do, it will make for stronger lives, it will make for stronger homes, and it will make for a stronger church, and we'll glorify the Lord. And if the Lord tarries, again, we're right, listen, we're right on the book of Esther, man. I don't don't know how he can. But if he does, we can set up the next generation for success, and we can have a lot of fun giving God glory in the process, just lifting him up. But we've got to do our part starting today. We're going to go ahead and, and, and close in a word of prayer and, and uh, sing in that one final worship song. And, and as we're doing that, listen, just ask yourself. We're starting something new here. Now we got life groups starting up this week. We're starting a new series here that we're going to learn how to build our homes and our lives in this church. Now's the perfect time. Jump in. Show up this Wednesday. If you've not been to a life group, show up this Wednesday. Pick one. And just be faithful on that. And, and tell the Lord, while we're singing this last song, if the Lord's dealing with you, allow him to. Be receptive to it. Hear what he has to say to you this morning. And then tell him that you're going to get involved. And then just take those steps. Just show up. Just keep showing up. Keep learning. Keep just, just doing the things that we have and the things that we ask. Just keep doing it. And you'll be amazed 
at how God can use you. And if you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior before, if you don't know him as Lord and Savior, you, it, uh, that's very simple. You can give your life to him today. There's nothing that you have to do other than place your faith in him. Place your faith in his finished work on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for your sin. You know you've committed sin. And those sins have to be paid for. And he did it. You just have to accept it. You have to accept it in faith. Accept his grace by placing your faith, by believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to pay for your sins. And just tell him to, to, to come into your life and into your heart and to save you. And he will do it. What better day today than to get saved? Get saved today and then come join us in all we have before us.